It is truly wonderful to be here. It is wonderful to be your speaker, and I appreciate so much the invitation. Uh, although a two-year-old invitation, as we all know, but uh, I'm so thankful that this meeting has finally transpired, and it's great to see all of your faces again. It's, uh, I've been here before, but it's been a long time, and it's always a pleasure uh, to be here, and particularly to be your speaker this afternoon. Our text and our question at hand is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Now I invite your attention there. We're going to read Hebrews 2 and the first four verses of that chapter. And I think there we will find some things that will pique our interest. Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, the Bible there reads, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. After chapter 1... After the writer there talks about how God speaks to us today, how at one time in various ways and in various manners He spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, but now speaks to us through His Son. After talking about the fact that the Son by inheritance has obtained a more excellent name, the fact that He is the Son of God, the fact that He is God incarnate. After talking about the superiority of the Son of God over even the angels of heaven, angels who are ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation, the writer then sets up a pretty good reason why following after Jesus is the way to go. And truly the salvation that exists in Jesus the Christ is great. It is powerful. It is far-reaching going out to whosoever will. In a world that is hopelessly condemned because of the sins that they have committed, God provided a way. He provided a means of escape from the sins that we have committed, from the wrath and judgment against the unrighteous to come. That means being Jesus Christ the righteous and the sacrifice that He gave for us at Calvary. Uh, remember 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. At the end of that verse it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it's because of this willingness of God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that a way was given. But the question before us this afternoon is how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Remember this afternoon that neglect isn't just flat refusal. Rather, it's failing to put the proper importance upon something. Looking at it carelessly and flippantly uh, Strong's has it to make light of or to be negligent. And really this is a rhetorical question. I don't want to give it away uh, necessarily right at the beginning, but I think we all know where this is going. The answer is obvious. There is no escape to be made if one neglects the salvation that God extends. There is no trap door. There is no secret passage into uh, the back of heaven. If we neglect salvation, the salvation that God extends that He has paved the way for, that he has uh, thought up and had ready since the foundation of the world, if we neglect that, if we ignore it, if we think carelessly of it, there is no escape to be had from the fiery judgment that will come which will devour the adversaries. And nor should there be. 
Nor should there be a way of escape. We cannot advocate that there is escape anywhere else either. If we truly believe in Christ, if we truly believe that He is the Son of God and everything that He has ever claimed to be, why would we send people to find escape somewhere else? Why would we send them to the various places and religions and thought processes of the world? There are some people that want to say that, you know, they want people to be Christians. We want them to come to church, but really, you know, in the end, we can all just end up uh, wherever we are here in this world because we'll all end up in heaven someday. And that is a false doctrine this afternoon, brethren, because if you could, Christ really wouldn't be Christ. If we could, the sacrifice of God would be meaningless because Jesus says in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Our salvation is great because it is the escape, because it is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and the only means by which we can achieve eternal salvation and to go in any other direction is to neglect the salvation and the way of escape that has been provided for you and I. If we do so, there is no means by which we can escape the judgment of God. But it seems to me that the writer in verses 1 through 4 shows us three different ways that one could neglect salvation, which if we do them, there will be no way to escape. And that's what we will look at for the remainder of our time this afternoon. Number one. We can neglect salvation, the salvation that God extends, if we drift away. Remember Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, or chapter 2 verse 1, which says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Uh, what were the things that they had heard? It's identified in verse 3 as that which was spoken by the Lord and confirmed by those who heard Him. Talking about the words of Christ, the New Testament uh, scriptures, that which will judge us in the last day, according to John chapter 12, verse 48. But what happens when we aren't paying attention? What happens when we start losing focus a little bit? That's when we start drifting away. Just like a boat on the ocean that's not moored correctly, if we aren't paying attention, we can start floating away from where we used to be ever so gradually until we look up and realize that we are a long way from shore. And the same thing can happen in the Lord's church as well. How does drifting start? Well, it starts with being just a little bit loose here or there. It starts when we start saying, you know, this knot that we have here, it feels a little bit too tight for modern times. We need to loosen that up a little bit. We need to uh, be a little bit more lax than perhaps we have been. It starts by asking this question over and over again. Well, what's wrong with it? You know, I don't see anything wrong with it necessarily. Over and over again, instead of asking what's right with it, can I prove it by the Word of God and by that which the Lord has revealed? It starts with allowance and tolerance and making sure everybody's happy and pleasing people and making things easier and much more comfortable. It starts with losing fervor and zeal for the truth and for laboring for the Lord and for edifying one another. And it ends with people who will not escape the condemnation of God. And you might say, oh, that's just a bunch of alarmism. You're using the slippery slope fallacy. And... Just introducing one new thing or going lax here or there, that's not going to lead to a collapse. 
That's certainly not going to lead to uh, anything major. Change is a natural part of life. But if we start talking about changing the faith that was once delivered to the saints, diluting it or altering it in any way, then all is lost because you cannot change the gospel without compromising the gospel. We find in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, Paul there is upbraiding the congregations in the region of Galatia because, as he puts it, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. But notice what he says here, which is not another. There isn't another gospel to be found because there isn't another way of escape. There isn't another means by which mankind can have their sins forgiven which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. One change is one change too many and without correction drifting into oblivion is inevitable. But I want to emphasize this afternoon that there is a difference between drifting from the doctrine and drifting from what we've always done and drifting from traditions of the past that we have created for ourselves. There are times when people confuse change and adaptation and even growth for drifting. And this happens when we're concerned less with where God wants us to be moored, where God wants us to be, and more concerned with what we've tied ourselves to in the past. Brethren might say, oh, we never, never used to do it this way. We never done anything like that back in my day. This is different than anything. Using the internet to spread the gospel? Drifting. No two-week meetings anymore? Drifting. Electronics in the services? Drifting. With all due respect to the past, with all due respect to those who lived in those days and worked and labored for the Lord, that isn't drifting. It's change and adaptation to the times because true drifting comes from failing to put the proper importance upon the Word of God. Looking at the precepts in it as flexible and pliable to our own whims. Drifting comes in the quiet moments when nothing too terrible is going on. When we aren't working as hard as we need to. When we're not reading. When we're not studying. When we're not praying. When we're not fellowshipping together as the body of Christ as hard as we once did. And we start to let principles and perhaps even our own brethren slip through the, uh, through the cracks of neglect because we neglect the Word of God. There's a writer by the name of Charles Moody, and he penned a song long ago with the title, Drifting Too Far From the Shore. And the first verse reads like this, Out on the perilous deep, where dangers silently creep, and storms so violently sweep, you are drifting too far from the shore. Yes, this is where drifting will end up. And there are a few examples that we have in the Bible of people or congregations who drifted from where they used to be. But perhaps none better than Revelation chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5 in the church at Ephesus. Where it says in verse 4 and 5, he talks in the first three verses about all the good things that they have done. All the good works and how firm they used to stand upon the word of God. And confirm that uh, everyone stand on the word of God as well. But he says, nevertheless... I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen.
fallen from where he used to be. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. These were people who were doing the right things or had at one point in time, but they started falling away. They started drifting and moving and falling from where they used to be to where now they're nearly unrecognizable. They had left that first love. Whatever that first love might have been. It could have been a number of things. But they had left it. And the cure for drifting is repentance. It's getting back to what we have received and what we have heard in the first place. Not to what we've always done. Not to what grandma and grandpa did. But what the Word of God tells us to do. Neglect can come in a number of different ways. We can neglect so great a salvation as we have by drifting from it. And there is no escape to be had if that occurs. Number two this afternoon, we can neglect God's salvation if we don't learn from the past. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2, he says, For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. That's what that verse says. And the writer here is telling his Jewish audience to think back. Remember all the occasions where under the law of Moses, when people sinned against it. What happened to those who sinned against the law of Moses when they, when they neglected their salvation? Now the word angels or messengers here in verse 2 could be in reference to one of, one of two things. It could be in reference to angelic beings with a call back to Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2 and Psalm 68 and verse 17. We don't have time to read those here this afternoon, but I encourage you to read them at some point in time. This could also be translated as messengers to which this would be a call back to Hebrews 1 and verse 1 at the beginning of the book and the way that God communicated to the fathers by the prophets from the beginning of the book. And I think in a way, both are correct. The law of Moses and the books of the prophets that followed them told the words of the Lord and the consequences for breaking them. The words that were spoken were steadfast and true. He's not questioning whether they were. He's not asking if they were or not. They were steadfast and true. And every transgression and every act of disobedience did come with a price. Look no further than Adam and Eve. Look no further than Lot's wife who turned back despite the Lord's command, was turned into a pillar of salt. Look at Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire before God. God told them where to get fire, but they said, no, we're going to get fire over here, and that's going to be just fine. But as we know, it wasn't. Think to the earth opening up and swallowing the household of Korah in rebellion. Or Uzzah that was struck dead when he touched the Ark of the Covenant in an attempt for him to keep it from falling to the ground. But breaking the commandment of the Lord, and the list could go on and on, of all that received their just recompense for their wrongdoings against God's Word in days gone by. And the logic here that he's trying to use behind this argument is that if this is true in the lesser how much more true will it be in the greater? And sometimes, brethren, we forget that our God is a living God that executes justice upon the unrighteous. And we do well to look back from time to time and remember God means business. When God tells us to do something, He expects us to do it. And sometimes we forget that. Our world doesn't really like to talk about this side of God, do they? They don't like to talk about judgment. Certainly don't like to talk about consequences. And in a bid to take this side of God away, 
The religious world around us have tried to paint our God in heaven, our great and powerful great I am, as some sort of a grandfather like teddy bear who just throws his arms around everybody and loves them unconditionally and gives them blessings and candy before bed. That's not what our God is like. That's not the God that you and I serve. And while our God is a God of love, yes, He truly is. How do we know this? Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that God's love was made manifest toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is a God of love, but He is also a warrior against all those who have decided to become His enemies. He executes justice and judgment, and there is not one that escapes His outstretched hand. It was true in the Old Testament and it still rings true today. And there is coming a day of reckoning upon the world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 beginning in verse 7 it says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And if we don't learn this lesson from the past, that God punishes the unrighteous and gives every act of disobedience its just reward, if we disregard that, if we toss it aside, how shall we escape? And the truth is, we won't. But finally... We can neglect God's salvation if we ignore God's witnesses. Verse 3 of Hebrews 2, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. There are some people today that look at Christianity as something, a religion that just follows a bunch of myths and fairy tales. Because we preach that it takes faith to be a Christian, that we cannot walk by uh, sight, but rather by faith, they assume that means that it's not built on substance. There's no substance to be found in Christianity, but how wrong they are. And this is what the writer is emphasizing, that we have more than ample proof to show that, we are, that what we are saying is real, and that it is from God. First spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. Confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God bearing witness of it with signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. This wasn't just something they thought up out of the blue. As Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16, For we did not follow after cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. The subject of witnesses is of great importance in the Scriptures, and for good reason. Mankind has always required proof, and any self-respecting person should require the same for anything that they believe as well. And Christians should feel pretty good with what we have. Because we have 66 books worth of testimony. Beyond that, we have countless more eyewitnesses of God's power, His signs and wonders and gifts. People today like to talk about miracles. Oh, they like to talk about miracles a whole lot. But there is a reason why miracles existed. There is a reason why God performed these things. These verses tell us that they were done as a witness of God's power and of His approval of that which was said by those who performed them or through whom those uh, it was that performed them. It was seen by many, written down, so that even you and I today can have the assurance of our, in our salvation. Why? 
John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here's the deal. There's a lot that I don't know. I'll confess that to anyone who asks. But I don't have to know everything to know that what I've been told and what I have read in the books of the Bible are real. I don't have to know every single detail to know that the Scriptures are the words of God and that it is God-breathed and that they show the way from this world to the next to have my sins forgiven and live eternally in the heavens with God. And if somehow you can shove all that to the side and brush past the weight of evidence that stands before us and look the other way if you can walk away from the Word of God thinking there is meaning in the religions and philosophies of the world, how do you think you're going to escape? To neglect the witnesses of God, of which there are many, that point to a loving God that gave the world a Savior so that we might not perish but have everlasting life. To neglect that is to neglect our great salvation. The only way out of sin's dark and cold grip. How will you escape if you neglect it by ignoring the witnesses of God? And in conclusion, I'd like to read Hebrews chapter 10. Because he picks this back up, this line of reasoning in Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant which... Uh, by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But lest we feel discouraged, we can thank God that he provided us a way of escape. Because he ends the book, or that chapter, chapter 10, in verse 38, or verse 39 rather. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. To those who deny God, who resist Him, there is no escape. But we believe to the saving of the soul.